You may have noticed this morning that we um, have done a few things a little bit differently. And uh, you may notice as we kind of continue through our service and even heading into the fall, uh, if you've been with us around Bethel for uh, any length of time, you may notice a few little things that are different. And uh, as we've been praying and reflecting on uh, and heading into this, uh, this fall, the beginning of a new ministry year, one of the, the things that's really been a Uh, a burden, a sense of uh, desire and need for us as a congregation as we've been praying about this is, uh, is a sense of connection together people to people in this season. The, the, the season we have walked through over the last couple of years has been one full of all kinds of upside down and turmoil and change in so many different ways, right? We, we all know this. The, the world as we know it has gone through an incredible amount of change in the last couple of years. We have felt this on the home front in terms of uh, with our different uh, loved ones and family members and, and all of that kind of thing. We've found that in uh, the ways that work happens for so many of us has changed and, um, and all, even as a church. And, and even uh, as I look across the, the beautiful faces of each one of you, I, I just see uh, so much change that has happened even here in our midst. And, and with all of that going on has really been, as I said, that, that sense of a, a desire and a need um, for connection, for connection with one another. The, the church is to be, is described by God as a family. It is, it is not just um, an attendance sport where you come in and, and sit in your seats, but it's actually a connecting body together as one. And so in a variety of different ways, we're trying to maybe subtly reinforce that. You know, so, so one of those is maybe you noticed that the lights were up a little bit more when we were singing, okay? So that wasn't a mistake by someone at the back. That was intentional to bring the lights up a little bit as we were singing. Now, why are we doing that? Well, maybe let me explain, first of all, why um, in the past, because I've often had people ask me about this, why, why drop the lights completely out when we're singing? And uh, let me share with you why, or maybe even why, why we didn't do that, okay? The heart behind why over the years we have done that is really specifically one thing. It's to remove distraction so that we fix our attention on worshiping Jesus, okay? That's why we have had lights out is, is not in any way, shape, or form in terms of like, you know, performance or any of those kind of things, but it's actually to, to remove distractions. So you come in and you're like, your attention is not worrying about what's going on around you and people around you and those sort of things, but it's just fixed upon Jesus. Now, we fully, wholeheartedly, totally still believe and agree and affirm that, okay? But one of the unintended byproducts, I think, of that has been at points, and totally unintended, but has been a sense of losing that we're not just coming here to sing just me to Jesus on my own, but actually we're uniting here together with our family collectively to sing praises to Jesus. And so in a subtle way to reinforce that, we are going to try this out and we'll see how it goes um, and uh, raise the lights a little bit to remind us, hey, we're coming in, uniting our voices together. And I, I loved 
Just even in that last song, hearing the voices of God's people singing out, holy, holy, holy is our Lord, the Lord Almighty. You uh, will notice in a little bit when we do communion that we're going to do communion a little bit differently, okay? We're going to actually have um, brothers and sisters come forward, and they're going to serve us communion. And so we're going to come forward like we have from our seats, but then we're going to have people serving. And that, again, is this heart. So that when you come forward, because communion is an act of us remembering Jesus, his body broken, his blood poured out, but we're, we're doing this as a body, a family together. And so I think there is something beautiful about walking forward and looking into the eyes of one of your brothers or sisters and them reminding you here is the body of Christ broken for you. Here is the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. To develop that sense of, remind us of that sense of connection together. Now, I I will just mention regarding that, okay? I know that there are some in this room who you might be in a spot very legitimately where just because of like personal health uh, reasons and stuff like that where you still want to be able to um, have those little sealed up uh, um, communion cups. And so if that's you, what we're going to be doing, and, and it's here even true this morning, out at the Welcome Center is a little basket with some of those pre-sealed communion cups, okay? So when everyone comes up, and if you're like, hey, I just, for my own health reasons, that's that's totally understandable. That's totally fine. You can kind of sneak out to the back and then come back to your seat. And then in future weeks, you can kind of just know that and grab a cup on your way in. But, but the heart of this, I know for, for many of us, will be wanting to connect and have that chance to unite around the communion table. And then we're going to be starting today a new series in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts that I'm, I'm really looking forward to as we dive into God's word here together. And we're going to be starting into this series, and over the next few months, we're going to be walking through the first half of this incredible book of the Bible. I want, I want you to grab your Bibles out right now, if you haven't already. Grab one in the, in the seats in front of you there, and uh, pull that out and turn with me to the book of Acts. If you're not sure where to find the book of Acts, you're going to go to the New Testament, and you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts, okay? That is where we are going to be today. And what I want to do for us as we start out into this book is really we're going to look at the kind of introductory verses of it to study through these, but also kind of to give us an introduction to the book as a whole. To get, a, get our kind of our feet grounded, a sense of the lay of the land of where we are going to be heading over the coming days as we journey through this amazing part of God's Word as well. So, we are in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 12 this morning. 1 to 11, sorry. 1 to 11. God's Word begins. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem. 
But wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the father is set by his own authority, but you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Let us pray as we prepare our hearts to hear from the Lord. Holy, holy, holy are you, God. You are magnificent and mighty, worthy of the praise that we have been singing and so much more. And we unite here together at the beginning of a new season with such overflowing hearts of both gratitude and being humbled. Gratitude for your kindness and your love and your mercy extended to us. Gratitude for sending your son, Jesus. Gratitude that we can gather together with brothers and sisters and be a part of a family as a church like this. Gratitude for your word that we can even pull open copies ourselves of your word in a language we understand to read and to study. Thank you. And we are humbled because we are so unworthy. You are the holy God, and we are broken sinners. You are perfect in all of your ways, and we have rebelled against you. And so we are so humbled. How can we even call upon your name? How can we be called your children? Oh, thanks be to you for your Son. And now as we open your word, we ask that you would speak to us. Oh God, give us ears, humble hearts and humble ears to hear, to listen, to receive what you would have, and not just to hear it, but to live it this day and in the days ahead. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. Here's the big idea for us today. Okay? If you're taking notes, jot this one down. Here's kind of the one-sentence summary for what we are going to be learning and seeing today. We are entering into the history of the Holy Spirit's work in the church, okay? As we study the book of Acts, as we start out in this initial first few verses of introduction into it, both for today and for where we are headed in this series, here is the big idea. We are entering into the history of the Holy Spirit's work in the church. Now, what we're going to do today is I'm going to grab on to three parts of that sentence for us to dig into, okay? Three parts of that sentence for us to dig into. First, 
we are entering into the history of the Holy Spirit's work in the church. We are entering into the history. When I was first preparing my notes for this message, I had made this sentence to say, we are entering into the story of the Holy Spirit's work. And I, and I decided to change it from the word story to the word history because for some of us, maybe we have the proclivity to think when we hear the word story, we equate it with like story fairy tale, story made up reality, story, mythology. We come to an ancient book like this that is a couple thousand years old, and we're like, oh, this is from a distant time, and this is sort of, you know, a mythological book, or this is a full of, of good moral principles, but, but that's kind of about it, and it's dated, and it's old, and it's archaic. But what we're going to see is that this is a book of history. This is a book of history. Actual people, actual places, real time, actual happenings, okay? This is history before us. The book of Acts is actually a two-part book, or it was actually a letter, okay? It was actually the second half of a two-part letter. The first half is what we would call the Gospel of Luke, Okay? The Gospel of Luke is part one of this letter that Luke wrote, and then the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, we call it the book of Acts for short form, is the second half of the letter written by Luke to this guy named Theophilus. We, we see this, okay? the very introduction to the book of Gospel of Luke. Many have undertaken, Luke wrote, to draw up an account on, uh, of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught." Okay, so Luke introduces in the beginning of the gospel of Luke this friend named Theophilus who he is writing to to tell him all of this stuff he's carefully researched about the life of Jesus. Now we go back and just let me reread the first couple of verses we already read of Acts chapter 1. In my former book, what's he referring to there? My former book is the first, the gospel of Luke. Theophilus to the same guy, okay, my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So Luke was this doctor. He was actually uh, became a very close worker with the apostle Paul in terms of going out and doing missionary work and ministry work. He was a physician, and he was just very systematic in his thinking. And, and somehow, we don't know exactly how, he gets connected up with this guy named Theophilus. Theophilus presumably is either just recently come to Christ, or he has been taught about Christianity, but he's wrestling with it. Either way, whether he has recently become a convert or he is still in the process of trying to discern whether he will or not, he's got a whole bunch of questions. He's got a whole bunch of wonderings. He's trying to clarify, is what I've been taught really true? 
Is what, I, what I've learned, is what people have told me, really legitimate? And so Luke has gone to the work of going and doing this like whole bunch of interviews with like firsthand witnesses to find out a whole bunch of information. And then we'll see later on in the book of Acts that he actually enters into the story. And so he starts telling some of his own firsthand eyewitness accounts as well. To write to Theophilus, so that he would be certain about what he's been taught. That's what Luke and Acts, part one and part two, are all about. The whole letter, Luke and Acts, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, they are history. This is not letters written in a land far, far away in a time long, long ago about some people at some point of time in some place generally. This is not recounting of mythology. This is not just nice-feeling stories. This is not just moral platitudes. What we are going to read is history. And Luke goes out of his way to show this. I mean, you start in the Gospel of Luke. Right after he gives that little first four-verse introduction that we read, here's what he says. Verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Okay, let me ground this whole thing in a very particular time and place, is what he's saying there. To introduce the birth of Jesus, this is what he says. In the days of Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Okay, in case you're wondering, wondering if this really happened. There was Caesar Augustus. This was the time when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. You want to cross-check it with some other historical records? I'm putting it right in history here. The way we are introduced to John the Baptist before Jesus' ministry. We read this in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, when Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was tetrarch of Ituria and Trachotonus, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene. So, in case you're thinking this is just kind of in some time, somewhere. No, 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 no. Let me tell you exactly when this is. Jesus' ministry happened in specific, known places, particular towns with specific people. He was crucified. Luke goes out of his way to, to tell us the things that, that if you've been around church for any amount of time, you just like intuitively know these things, but they're actually really purposeful of Luke. Okay, Who was it that was a part of crucifying Jesus? We know that it was Pilate and it was Herod because we want to be told this actually happened amongst real historical figures. And this exact same thing carries forward into the book of Acts. When we get to see amazing things that start to happen, we are introduced, for example, when Peter and James are, or Peter and John are arrested in Acts chapter 4. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. 
the precise cities where churches were planted is listed in meticulous detail. When Paul is arrested, we get this letter quoted in the book of Acts. He wrote a letter as follows, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings, and then it goes on with this whole explanation of why they arrested Paul. And I could just go through example after example after example, and we will see this as we walk through the book of Acts, but here's the bottom line. The point is, this really happened. This is history. And and this is so important because just as Theophilus had a whole bunch of questions, there is a question that I guarantee every person in this room in some variation of it has faced. Whether it is in school with one of your classmates, whether it is at work with some of your coworkers, whether it is in your own family or whether it is with neighbors, every single person in this room, if you have disclosed at all that you are a Christian, has faced this question. Do you know what it is? You have faced the question, okay, so you say you believe that, but I know this person over here who believes this. How do you know which is right? Have we not all faced that question? How can you possibly say your way is the way? I mean, there's all these people who have all these opinions and who make all of these claims. How can you discern there is one way? Don't all ways generally get you to the same place? We've all faced that question, have we not? And at first, that might sound like a doozy of a question. At first, that might seem like, I don't really know how to answer that. I don't really know how to approach that. Here's what we are going to see in the book of Acts. Here's what we're seeing right from the very beginning. Here's how one key way you answer that question. We're talking about history. We are not just claiming a faith that is based upon someone's ideas from some as they sat under a tree. We are not just taking at face value somebody who said they had a vision one night while they were sleeping. Oh, and we've got to kind of like abide by that and just take that for its word. We are looking at and based upon and rooted in actual people, actual places, actual times that really happened. This is why Luke says at the beginning of Luke, I'm writing to tell you this carefully researched out history so that you can be certain of what you've been taught, Theophilus. This is why we hear together, Bethel, hear the words that are in front of us as we study through this to see the carefully recounted facts and history so that we can be certain of what we have been taught. And we are going to see, and this is all the more important to remember that this is history, because even in our own text, and certainly in the days ahead as we start to journey through the book of Acts, we're going to see some, frankly, like audacious, ridiculous, 
mind-blowing, that can't really be true stuff go down. That is going to make, if, if you're at all a critical thinker, and there's nothing wrong with being a critical thinker in church, okay? You're going to at first be like, really? Really? Yeah, really. Luke is trying to show us this really happened. These audacious, crazy, mind-blowing, utterly impossible, there is no way this could actually have gone down stuff really went down. God performed miracles in history. That's what we're going to see over and over, the utterly impossible done. And if these things didn't really happen, I, I, it doesn't matter how fuzzy, nice of a feeling it makes for you inside to come to church like this. If the actual historical events didn't happen, this is a waste of your time. This is foolish. First Corinthians says we should be more pitied than anyone if what the historical records didn't really say happened. But... If they did, it changes everything. And what we're going to see is the history of God miraculously breaking into our world to give us a firm, certain foundation on which we stand and which we believe. Here's the second word I want to point out for us. We are entering into the history of the Holy Spirit's work in the church. The Holy Spirit's work in the church. We need to prepare ourselves to see this is not only a letter of history, this is a recounting, a pointing to, a drawing our attention to the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible is crystal clear. In all the universe, there is one God. One God and only one God. There are not many gods all approaches to the world and all worldviews are not equal. There is one God and only one God, and the one God in all of the universe is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. You may have heard this referenced. It's not, a, it's not directly in the Bible, but to try and describe this notion, theologians over the years have used the word trinity, tri-unity, one God, three persons. Now, in certain circles, and I am going to lump us as Baptists into these circles, we talk a whole lot about God the Father. We talk a whole lot about God the Son. We even get very excited to talk about the Word of God, but for some reason, in certain circles, we largely just skip over, avoid, neglect, gloss by any talk of the Holy Spirit. We, we, for any number of different reasons that has happened over the years, where maybe because of misunderstandings, maybe because of misguided teachings, 
maybe because of misinformed or just straight up wrong actions uh, attributed, supposedly said to be from and of the Holy Spirit. There has been certain circles and certainly Baptists are one of these where it has often been like, whoa, whoa, okay, we'll just kind of avoid this. Now, we don't ever say that right? You pull up a Baptist statement of faith, and it talks about the third person of the Trinity, but if you're around a church for any amount of time, you're like, wait a minute, we talk a lot about God the Father, and I hear lots of talk about Jesus, and we look into the Bible, but when was the last time we really talked about the Holy Spirit? How much time do we spend talking about the Holy Spirit? How often do we reflect upon the Holy Spirit? We just kind of gloss that over. Now, can I tell you, we do this if we do it, to our detriment. We do this to our detriment because the Bible does not gloss over the person of the Holy Spirit. And most definitely, in Luke's two-part letters here, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he does not for a second gloss over the work of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. He, He, Luke here, brings to like the big deal of this whole letter is the Holy Spirit. Church, the forefront attention comes to the work of the Holy Spirit through his church. We look at the gospel of Luke. Here's just like a quick slide up on the screen. I won't spend much time on this, but if you want to go and study into these texts, you can see. Don't just take my word for it. Luke begins the Gospel of Luke, and he's just like all about the Holy Spirit throughout his whole Gospel of Luke. John the Baptist, even as a baby, is full of the Holy Spirit when he's in his mother's womb. Mary is going to have a baby. How does Mary have a baby? By the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that led John the Baptist's father to prophesy after he regains his voice. The Holy Spirit is the one who came upon Simeon to bless Jesus in the temple when he was a baby. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes down upon Jesus when he is baptized. The Holy Spirit is the one who leads Jesus, leads Jesus out into the desert to go toe-to-toe with Satan. And the Holy Spirit is the one who gives Jesus the power to preach to heal, to cast out demons, to do his ministry. Jesus' whole ministry is in submission to and the power of the Holy Spirit working through him. That's the Gospel of Luke. And the exact same thing carries on through the, through the book of Acts. It just keeps going on and on. Jesus tells his disciples in this passage we just read, don't, don't you dare go anywhere, okay? You guys need to stay right here. Why? Verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will be baptized with... Don't go anywhere. You really need him. They come back and sort of quiz Jesus about what he was talking about here. Jesus says in chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when who comes on you? Who does he say? The Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We will see in a couple weeks in the book of Acts, chapter 2, Pentecost, the big deal moment of the genesis of the church is when who comes down? 
the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves in power as the church unites together to pray. The Holy Spirit moves in power as the gospel is proclaimed. The Holy Spirit comes down upon Jews and then Samaritans and then Gentiles. The Holy Spirit pours out signs and miracles and salvation. We are going to jump into this incredible story, this incredible history, and it is a history of the Holy Spirit moving. You, you simply cannot read the book of Acts legitimately and not say, wow, our attention is drawn to the person of the Holy Spirit. And there's a song we sang earlier this morning. We sing it somewhat regularly, same God. This is so important for us. I love the words of that song in so many different ways. As I apply it to this thought here, the same God who poured out his Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is still pouring out his Holy Spirit today. The same God who gives his Holy Spirit to every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is the same God who is putting his Holy Spirit in every person today who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. We need the Holy Spirit desperately. I am praying that as we walk through this, one of the things that comes out of our journey in this is a desire and earnestness as a church, as a whole, and individual followers of Jesus, or even people, if you are on your journey today and you have not yet become a follower of Jesus, you're like, I need the Holy Spirit. I want to give my life to Jesus. I need to give more room to the Holy Spirit in my life. May that be what God would do in our midst, Bethel. We need the Holy Spirit to give us love that sweeps through us at a greater level. We need Holy Spirit-given unity to protect us. We need the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts and break us over our sin. We need the Holy Spirit to help us introduce others to Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to cause men and women to be born again and to line up around the block to get into the tank to get baptized. We need the Holy Spirit to learn how to exercise our spiritual gifts and live them out. Identify that we've got gifts of mercy or hospitality or evangelism or giving or faith or prayer or signs or wonders and to use them in accordance with the Word of God. We need the Holy Spirit to fire our prayer gatherings and we might be rocked as we unite in prayer. We need the Holy Spirit to give us an inflamed passion to reach to the ends of the earth and not just be content with the fact that people around us and to the ends of the earth are dying and going to hell because no one's going and telling them about Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to be poured out for these reasons and so many more. Now, some of you in this moment are like, oh no, where are we going? What are we about to do? And I would just say to you, I am in no way advocating for us to swing from the chandeliers. I am in no way arguing or suggesting that, that we need to focus and get so dedicated to like excesses and emotional experiences or that we get so focused on the gifts and lose sight of the giver. That's not where we're going because that's not where the Bible goes. That's not where the book of Acts goes. 
But make no mistake, it does lead us profoundly to see and reflect and follow after the Holy Spirit's work. And that is where I'm praying by God's grace He would allow us to go in the days ahead. God has given the church, all churches, this local church, the Holy Spirit, for a reason, to do mighty things. May we follow after Him. Number three, we are entering into the history of the Holy Spirit's work in the church. We are entering into the history of the Holy Spirit's work in the church. We are going to enter into this history. In one sense, we're going to enter into this history by, by literally going verse by verse through this letter, this book of the Bible, and we are going to immerse ourselves in the text. I encourage you, if you are not, to get signed up into a small group so that each week you can gather together with a few brothers and sisters and dialogue and pray and reflect on and wrestle with and seek to apply this word. So we are entering into it in that sense, but when I say and wrote that sentence, I, I mean even something more than just that. See, this is not just the book of Acts, a history about what God did back then. We are entering into the history in the sense that the Spirit of God is still working through us, His church, His people all around the world who are lovers and living for Jesus, and we are continuing to walk out what we are going to see. So we are entering into the book of Acts in the sense that we are carrying forward this history of the Holy Spirit's work in the church. God's heart, going all the way back to the very beginning of time, was to make a people for his very own. A people who would worship and glorify him rightly, who would know and love and live for him, and who would know him personally. Not just, not just in a theory of God, but as a personal relationship, as their father, that they would love God, worship God, live for God. This is why Jesus came. This is the whole climax of the story is all of humanity is made for relationship with God, but on our own, we can't do it. So God sent his son to deal with our sin, to take our punishment that we deserve, to make us right before God so that everyone who would put their faith in Jesus could be reconciled to God and live in that relationship. And think with me for a moment about what we read. Let me read it one more time. What Jesus said to his disciples in verse 8. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, the way Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth was going to hear how they could have a reconciled relationship with God 
was through these disciples. That's his point. The way people are going to hear, the way people are going to receive, the news of the history is you going and telling them. What that means is the way you got here today and I got here today and we sit here today is because that first generation that was with Jesus went and told some people who went and told some people who went and told some people who went and told some people all of that by the power of the Holy Spirit whom they receive when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. But this got passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation until finally somebody in the line came and told you. That's why you're here today. Or you are here right now hearing it for the very first time. This has gotten passed along, disciple after disciple after disciple multiplying, which leads us to here today. And so, first of all, there are some in this room where you're on your own spiritual journey and you're trying to wrestle through, what do I make of all this church stuff, Jesus stuff? Do I really buy it? Do I really believe this is really reliable and true? Do I really want to commit myself to what this book is saying and I just want to plead with you like pretty much every week I do. There is an invitation being held out to each and every one of us where you can know the God of the universe and you can receive the Holy Spirit into your life even this very day if you surrender your life to Jesus. And so if you're here today and that's where you're at in your journey, I'm getting to be like one who passed it along to me and now I'm getting to stand up here and tell you or that friend who's sitting beside you or whatever else, it, whoever else it might be is passing on this message and you have the opportunity to receive this amazing news. Now I know there's many others in this room who have received that amazing news and here's what it means for all of us. After we do receive Jesus, or now that we have received Jesus, you and I are entering into this work that God is doing to reach the ends of the earth. We are not here to just cruise. God's way of reaching our town and the towns we represent and this province, and our country, and the ends of the earth. Do you know what his strategy is? It's us. It's you and me. It's not on someone else, some other person in the room, some other part of the world, some other aspect for him to write a letter in the sky. His plan, he could do anything, but he has made it crystal clear, his plan is us. His plan is you and me. As men and women who have received Jesus as our Savior, the Holy Spirit living in us and then calling us to go and be His witnesses. His witnesses to those in our classrooms. His witnesses to those in our workplace. His witnesses to those on the other side of the yard or the other side of the fence. His witnesses to the farthest ends of the earth. We are the plan. And so as we dive into this book of Acts, we are entering into the history that God is writing. 
and the work of his Holy Spirit to build the church.